Uh, in this hour or so, I want to go over what is philia, like I had mentioned before. And we're going to look primarily at Aristotle. Aristotle uh, brings up love in a couple places, but primarily this time we're going to look at the main book where he talks about it, and it is in a book called the Nicomachean Ethics. Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, it's written on the front right here. Nicomachus was the name of his son, and he dedicated the book to his son. Nicomachean Ethics. Um, this book is arguably the most influential book on ethics in history. Um, any course on the great books would have to speak about this one. Like, uh, it would also have to speak about the Republic, which is probably arguably the most influential book on politics. This book would be probably the most influential book on ethics. And it is wonderful. It is one of the books that's most influenced me in my life. In all my studies. Uh, I would say this, the metaphysics of Aristotle, uh, we're talking outside of Christianity. Um, metaphysics of Aristotle, probably the Republic of Plato also. Republic of Plato. Um, definitely worth going into, but better to go into this with a class. Better to enter this book with a class or reading a book about it first or reading the introduction. Um, it's not that it's a terribly hard book. It's actually one of the easier books by Aristotle. Um, but if you're not used to philosophy and the way of thinking, it's tough, if you put it that way. It's like if you pick up a mechanics, car mechanics manual, it's tough, but it's not. <laughs> you get what I mean? It's tough because you don't know the language. It's tough because you're not used to reading it. But it's not tough as far as the material. Some of the stuff in this is, but the majority of it is easier than other books he has. In this book, um, he's going to start out the very beginning by asking... Um, what is, what is it that all things are looking for? What is it that everything is questing or looking for in life? And all, it seems that all human action is looking for happiness. His sense of happiness is not the same thing as ours. When we think of happiness, we think of joy or pleasure. It depends on what you understand by those words. When he thinks of happiness, he, he means fulfillment and meaning. All things are seeking to be fulfilled. And he starts out with that as almost a self-evident truth. <laughs> he says in many places that you're... How do you know if it appears to be fulfilling or is fulfilling? And that's a debate. But nevertheless, all things, all human action is in view of fulfillment. 
And what we're looking for is what is true fulfillment and what is not true fulfillment. And if we can find out where we find true fulfillment, how do we get there? Will be the next questions. And when he is debating about that, he's going to say, well, all things seek fulfillment or happiness, and they, all things find it when they find what, they, what is good for them, when they find the good. Think about your own life. When have you been fulfilled? <laughs> when you find what's good for you. It's, it should be a self-evident truth and a beginning point, a place where we can begin ethics. How do you know what is right or wrong by what is good, what is fulfilling, what is fulfilling, and what is not fulfilling? What is meaningful is another more modern term. What is meaningful and what is meaningless? And his work is going to be saying like, okay, let's look at a, a flautus, we say, a flutus, flautus, a flautus, if I pronounce that correctly. Um, a flautus, a person who plays a flute, um, is a um, great flautist, is a great um, musician, if what they do all the time is good. All the time, consistently, every time they play the flute, it's good. In order to do that, they have to be excellent. It's not easy to be a flutist. They have to work hard at it. And they have to ingrain habits that allow them to do it like they're playing, like they're playing like a child. Because when you're a child, you play the flute and it doesn't sound good. But you do it for fun. As you get older, you try doing it well, and you don't succeed. Until you've practiced it for 10,000 hours, as we say nowadays, you're not good at it. You're maybe good, but not great, let's say. You become great when you practice it for 10,000 hours and you've established habits. Without those habits of being able to play the flute, you're not going to be a virtuoso. Hence, we speak of virtue, a virtuoso. You're not going to be excellent at it. And eventually, once you're a virtuoso, you can play the flute for fun like you did when you were a little kid. It's no longer a pain. It's better to do, talk about the violin than the flute because when you play the violin badly, it sounds bad. <laughs> the flute doesn't really sound as bad <laughs> when you play it badly. It does, but eh, not as bad as the violin. The violin is like... <laughs> um, so when you're playing the violin, when you're a virtuoso, you play for fun. You can play for fun. Rejoicing with all your friends. And you're playing excellent. And that's the mark of a virtuous man. A virtuous man does what is good and meaningful, and he does it for fun. He doesn't have difficulty in doing it. 
when you're young and you're struggling, it's hard to do what is virtuous. But once you've acquired virtue, you do what is excellent. But you do it because you want to, because it's easy, and because you get joy from it. And the virtuous man, just like the, the violin player or the, or the flautist, the violinist or the flautist, they, it hurts them to play badly. It like, it irks when they play badly. When they hear someone playing the flute wrong, okay? So they, not only do they get pleasure in playing it right, they have pain in wrong. And that's the mark of a virtuoso. It's not just being able to play it, it's having pleasure in playing it. And having pain and when it's played badly. And that's very important because he's going to next he's going to take another jump he's going to say well that's nice for a flautist. But what is it that doesn't make a, when what is it that makes a flautist great is playing the flute well the flute well sorry. Um the what makes a what makes a human great We're not talking about a great blacksmith. Because that that's easier to see. That, that's easier to see. Whatever it is, though, that's going to make a human great, is in the end, we're going to do it, if we, have, if we do it, with virtue. We'll do it excellently with habits that make it easy for us to do it. So that when we're doing it, we do it with joy. And we'll protect ourselves from evil act, action. Because if we do bad actions, it will be like the violinist when he's playing badly. Be like, Ugh. And when we're young, we'll work with our children and we'll work with ourselves to protect it so we don't have pleasure in what is bad. That's the mark of a vice. A vice is when, it's not when you do bad things all the time. A vice is when you get pleasure in doing bad. That's why we call it vicious. A murder is not vicious unless the murderer is having pleasure in killing. It becomes vicious. Vice-filled. And that takes habits of doing cruelty, of being cruel. It's not getting drunk once that makes for a vice. Because you wake up and you hate it. It is the regular habitual drinking that makes it so you wake up and have a beer where you enjoy it so much that the best cure for a hangover is another shot of whiskey. <laughs> um, where you get pleasure in being drunk and no pleasure in not. No pleasure in not. And that's a sign of vice. That already, all these distinctions he's making 
in the very first chapter. Or we'll call it actually, in his language, he'll call them books. So it's made up of ten books. And in each book, it's subdivided into chapters. In the first book, he'll talk about these things. Second book, he talks about them a little bit too. Talks about in general what goes on. But also, if I'm wondering, what is a happy man? I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. Can you tell if someone's truly happy if they're not yet dead? What happens if they're truly happy all their life, in the last two weeks of their life, they're miserable? Does that make for a happy life? Mm, not really. I mean, I guess so, but not the kind of perfect life we're looking for. <laughs> you know? So um, can you tell if someone is happy if they're, if they're not yet dead? But then once they're dead, I mean, that's too late. I mean, so, I mean, what do you, you should try to tell on this earth, right? You also ask a lot of questions in that beginning point, like, how much riches should you have? Well, it's very good because he says, you shouldn't have too much. You shouldn't have too little. You should have a balanced amount. Not so much, well, not so little that you're always looking for food. And not so much that you're always worried about everything. Because with more money comes more responsibility. More responsibility comes more. More stress. More stress comes more misery. And so he'll say the ideal amount of money is somewhere between plenty and lack. Somewhere between plenty and lack. Should not search for too much. Or he'll, in that first book, go into um, how virtue needs to not be what is, um, I don't know, excellent for animals. But in our case, it needs to be excellent for humans. Like we could say we're an excellent eater. But that's not what makes me as a human fulfilled. It's what makes me as an animal fulfilled, is eating. So I'm not interested in that, really. I'm not interested in what makes me as an animal fulfilled. But I'm interested much more in what makes me as a human fulfilled. He'll start to say in that first book, and he'll go more into it, he'll start to say, well... It seems like, well, what, we got to find out what brings us to fulfillment. And I don't know. Well, I think if I look at it, though, I can narrow it down to certain groups of things that fulfill human beings. The, and he, he'll narrow it down to three kinds of things that we look for in order to be fulfilled. Okay? And they're very important in history. This. It, if you ever hear this again, you know what book it came from. And he kind of got it from Plato, too. So, um, he'll say there are three things. First thing, and this is for the hoi polloi, the, the 95% of humanity, think that they're going to find fulfillment in pleasure. The large majority of human beings... Search for fulfillment in feeling good. 
Nobody likes, as Christians, to say pleasure. But he doesn't mean just pleasure. We mean feeling good. Not feeling bad. (laughs) And when you say it that way, it's obvious that 95% of humanity is always looking for that. (laughs) Because we all do. You and I both, we're looking for not feeling bad. (laughs) That's obvious. But the problem is that... I don't know if that can really be our end. I don't know if that in itself brings about fulfillment because it seems to be more of a fruit of fulfillment than fulfillment itself. Meaning, I get fulfillment usually from being with a friend or, I don't know, reading a good book. And when I'm reading a good book, I also get pleasure as a fruit of that. But if I'm sitting there reading this book in order to get pleasure, I, I get sick of it. Like if I'm watching a, a show in order to just have fun, it gets boring. But if I'm really into the rugby game and I really want them to win, and they win, I have pleasure as a fruit. But I'm not going to the rugby game just to have pleasure. If I go just to have pleasure, I lose sight of it. I lose sight of the, I don't, I don't really care because, oh, I'm not having fun right now, so I won't pay attention. I'm not having fun right now, so I won't pay attention. Rather, I go to the rugby game so that my team might win. Usually. Or I go to the rugby game just to be with my family. That's another good reason. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why we can go. But it is because I'm with my family that I have the fruit called pleasure or feeling good. Okay, So that doesn't seem to be a proper thing of fulfillment. The other thing, the other two categories he's going to talk about is honor, an honorable life. And that's very Greek. And we'll call it maybe a life of service, a life of laying down my, laying down my life for others, for the good of others. And the last one is called contemplation, contemplative life. And those will be two ends that he will stick with. And it's funny because, again, this is written about 300 years before Christ, a little less, and it's very close to our charity and fraternal charity. It's very close to our charity and fraternal charity. That man will find true fulfillment in, laying, in loving my, the people around me and above all, laying out my life for the good of others. And ultimately in the contemplation of that which is higher. As a good philosopher, he's not going to say the contemplation of God right away because he's not starting from the point of view of faith. He's just saying, we all can experience contemplation and the joy of gazing upon uh, what is beautiful and good. And he's going to stick with those. uh, A life that is given to the search of contemplation, of contemplating things. So that last one is solitary. Solitary, because a contemplative life 
is giving of myself to contemplation of things. <laughs> so therefore, it's not, it's not giving my life to relating with other people. They're very distinct. Um, they can go together, but only in certain circumstances. You can't give your life to completely for Plato. Uh, for Plato, you can. For Aristotle, you can't. Give your life completely to politics and contemplation at the same time. You're either doing one or the other, primarily. And I find it to be true also. So Aristotle will say that the contemplative should not run the city. He should just guide the guy who's running the city. Because a contemplative could know the profound truths of the universe, but he needs to know the, also the practical daily work of how to run the city. You know? And that is a different way of thinking. It's not the same thing of knowing how to negotiate with someone in order to, and where to compromise and where not to compromise is not the same thing as understanding the basic principles of E equals MC squared, which would be the contemplative life. <laughs> okay, it's not the same thing. And therefore, the contemplative should not govern the city, according to Aristotle. He should speak with the guy who's running the city and help him to be oriented towards wisdom but he should not. And, it, and there's somewhat, it's somewhat true that there would be two kinds of, three kinds of life. The life of the hoi polloi, the common man, which is that of pleasure. Pleasure, looking for not feeling bad. If you think about how much today we're oriented towards medication um, as a whole population, uh, is really another point in the whole. Um, and then you get maybe, let's say, 4.9% are going to go for politics or laying my life down for other people. Politics, not necessarily in the sense of politicians, but already when I give myself to service of other people, helping the poor, it is a political act in Aristotle's thinking. He's not thinking in our thinking. We're thinking like politics, like Democrat, Republican kind of politics. He's thinking... Anytime I cooperate with other people, it's already politics. Because I'm working with three, four. It's already politics. So what John is doing over at the parish and working with everyone that comes in for St. Vincent de Paul is a political action. It's a political action, according to Aristotle, in his sense. So finding fulfillment in the other person that you encounter. And then finally, the 0.1% towards the contemplative life, the contemplation of that which is higher. Now, he doesn't give percentages. I just give that for dramatic effect. He does say, though, the hoi polloi. He does say the, hoi, the large majority of people. You know, He does speak about that. And then he says, very few We'll be going for contemplative. Um, and that's already, all that is already really interesting. And again, we're kind of in the first three books still, in the first three books. And then he's going to say, well, all right, so where are we going? We're going towards those directions. So, well, how do we get there? Well, we have to be excellent, like an excellent violin player. But how do you learn to be excellent? As a human being, practice, repetition, but 
not just practice and repetition, wise practice and repetition. Yeah, the right kind of action, the right kind of practice. Um, and what is that going to be? Well, he's going to say it's always doing what is prudent. Or he has a term in his fam- famous Greek word, or- orthos logos, which is right reason. Doing what is the, having the right reason in between things. So we'll speak about it often, and you've probably heard this and before, is that it has to be balanced. You don't want to go to any extreme. You don't want to go to any extreme. For example, with fasting, you don't want to not fast, and you don't want to fast so badly that you kill yourself. So you have to fast the right amount in order to help you to not become an extremist, but to be a lover. And how much is that? And you have to figure it out because for you, it's going to be different from you because you are a woman and you are a man and you are from another side of the world. You have a different genetical, genetical, genetic predisposition than he does. And then age really comes in to that. So what is balanced action for you is going to be different from balanced action for you, if that makes sense. But it's going to be... uh, what is going to help me to achieve my goal of loving the best? And that's always going to be a balance between two extremes. I'm not going to fast so much that I go crazy. I'm not going to fast so little that I don't have anything pushing me forward. That I end up falling into the hoi polloi, the love of pleasure, because I love eating food. You know? and, uh, so I have, to bal- I have to find the just middle. So virtuous action is always going to be the balanced act between two extremes. And how do we remain that way? There are important points like having prudence, but there's also ingraining that prudence into my feelings so that I enjoy doing what is balanced. And we'll call that temperance. Temperance would be ingraining it into my feelings. So that I enjoy fasting, which happens after a while of fasting. So that I enjoy my time of uh, reading my time of prayer. Now, it also ingrains itself into the stronger passions like courage and all that by a virtue that we call fortitude. It also affects like the way that I balance my actions and relations to others. I have to always search to be fair when I'm doing things with people. If I'm not fair... It's that whole principle of do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself comes back to me. If I'm not fair or just in my relationships with others, it'll come back to haunt me and I won't be excellent. If I'm too merciful or I am too hard, it'll come back to hurt me. 
Think of how you treat your children, the balance between uh, discipline and mercy uh, is very important balance. It's a very important balance. And you can abuse your children if you're too disciplined or you're too merciful. And so that would be called the virtue of justice, learning how to relate with others. Learning how to relate with others would be the virtue or the excellence of justice. There's all kinds of points that we could bring up on that because it gets complicated when you start working in like whole political societies on what is balanced and what is imbalanced. But it's in the end that he comes back to it and he says, okay, so this being said, we now know that we have to look for excellence. We now know that the excellence implies the balanced act, the prudent act, the right reason, as Aristotle says, orthos logos. It also implies the fact that I, I have deep longings for something. You'll call, there's a Greek term called bulesis, where I wish or I desire. I desire something. And so that leads me to contemplation. And because I become I'm virtuous, I can stay in contemplation. I can contemplate all the time. Not all the time, but all the time. Yeah. I have to sleep, right? But <laughs> quite often, I can spend my days looking, uh, gazing upon the face of God in creation. But he's going to say that there's these two ends, though. First is uh, that end of nobility, and second is the end of uh, contemplation. Contemplation, I would argue, leading us to the contemplation of God, or he would call it the first being in metaphysics, the first being. But before that, he's going to say, the, where do I learn nobility? I learn it in friendship. In philia. Philia is the secret to learning how to be united with my end, the thing that fulfills me. A friend fulfills me. And you find it all the time. So that, for, remember the first question when we're starting out, we say, what is happiness? I mean, all things are made for happiness, but what makes you happy? One of the answers is friendship. But not if friendship made me happy, I would just sit next to my friend all day and not eat or drink or not uh, do anything else, but just be there. And so it doesn't make me happy like uh, we would think. It doesn't make me happy like we would think. I need to make sure that I have enough money to get food. Because if I don't, I can't have time to be a friend. And that's why it's such a travesty Because the soul doesn't grow if you don't have enough money. It can, hypothetically, but usually not. That's why the church works so hard against poverty in the world. If you you chose to give up money, that's different in the religious life. If you choose to give up money, that's different. But if you're stuck without money, that's a minimum. You also need to be able to... um, 
have hands and feet. You know, you need the, not, not be terribly handicapped so that you can't function. Because that also hurts. It hurts you. That's why we call it handicapped. <laughs> you know? Luckily, today, we have means of going beyond that with a wheelchair and everything. So it's a little bit easier. You also need, it's like, he'll explain like there's a pyramid of needs that you have to make sure that are, are kind of there. But at the top, it, there's going to be the real reasons why all those are there. And one of the real reasons is friendship. <coughs> friendship is going to make eating food fun. Friendship is going to make earning money worth it. Friendship, he'll say, is like salt. It makes all the food taste good. Or friendship, it's like, like, is friendship necessary for eating? No. But on the other side, who would want to eat without any friends? <laughs> you know? Uh, it makes it fulfilling. Truly fulfilling. It's not necessary in the foundations, but it is that thing that comes in and makes everything special. So, on the bare necessities of life, yeah, of course it's not necessary, but it is something that, but it is something if I want, that is necessary, sorry, if I want to be happy. If I want to search for fulfillment. And it's not like it in itself makes me happy. It just changes the color of everything else. So that everything becomes painted that way. This is very different than Eros. Eros is, remember this, whole polarization of self for the absolute. And when I'm doing that for you, that's weird. You know, When I have this Eros love for another human being, it's like, <gasps> you know, I have to, ah. That's weird. Philia is not like that. Philia is like I sit with you. He'll speak about you can't really have a true love of friendship unless you've eaten an entire bag of salt with them. And he's talking about a big bag of salt, okay? Which means I don't eat the bag of salt. It means I put a little bit of salt on every single meal, and that's how many meals I have to eat with you before I can call you a friend. <laughs> More of that's what he's meaning. <laughs> yeah, until I've eaten the whole bag of salt with you, I can't call you a friend. It's something that grows on you. It's something that deepens. It's, not something, it's something that also dwells with you while you're living your life. So like you go to the movies, but you go to the movies with a friend. You know? You eat, but you eat with a friend. It's something that walks with you. So it's a different kind of love than Eros. Eros is focused and ecstatic in its motion. This is a holding hands while you're walking forward kind of love. Like uh, my best friend growing up, the big thing for him, the big problem with me entering the brothers is that I wouldn't be able to live in a house next to him and have barbecues every weekend all my life, which is a beautiful thought, which is a beautiful thought. And it's true. 
that, that was the decision to separate. So uh, can I call him truly a friend if I can't spend time with him anymore? He is a friend in potency, potentially a friend, right? But not actually. Because a friend, you need to be with him. You know, you could be away from him from a certain point in time, like a year, two years, three years, but for life, is that still a friend? Well, you need to have, be doing something together with a friend. So I would say it's potentially a friend, close to a friend. Nowadays with Skype, you can kind of say there's something we're doing together, right? Because I, I could talk with him or something. I could call him on a phone. But back in the time, you can't do that either. So that's it. That's it. And, for example, if I was to get married to a woman who didn't like my best friend, that would have been it too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the, I mean, the, you can't say that you're friends unless you're able to spend time with each other. And it's interesting. He'll distinguish between three kinds of love. And he's going to say... Well, three kinds of friends, really. You can say friends of pleasure, friends of usefulness, utility, and friend, true friends, we'll call it for right now. The friends of pleasure is when I love you for the pleasure I get from you. And there are many cases where it would be okay to love someone like that. For example, uh, what would be a good one? Uh, When someone is employed to uh, give me a tour of France, I hopefully as a Christian love them for more than that. But our relationship is a working relationship so that I can have fun. I'm actually paying the man so that I can have fun while getting my tour of France. There's nothing immoral in that. (laughs) Because immediately when we think of pleasure love, we think of immoral. immoral. So I wanted to start out with a controversy. (laughs) Um, But it's still a lesser form of love because I'm going to leave him. And I'm just using him at that moment. And it's not a problem because it's a mutually agreed use. He gets something out of it. He gets something out of it big time. Money, which he needs to survive in order to eat. So it's good. <laughs> I get out of it a good tour of France. Arguably, we would say that you have to have this respect for the human person that underlies everything and a love of, later on we'll call it charity, for everyone we meet. But that doesn't make him my friend. Just because I respect every person I, lo- I meet, I love everyone I meet, doesn't mean that it's philia. It's not, that would not be philia. A fundamental respect and, a, and all that, that's all another form of love. In this kind of love, we get, a, get things from each other. The second kind is usefulness. I use you. And this is a very good form of love, where we use each other all the time. For example, I go to a university class, and 
I'm a student, and I'm sitting next to Joe. And I turn over to Joe, and I say, hey, Joe, uh, do you want to study together? And he says, sure. And then we go and study every night for our class for that entire semester, and we get along very well, and we end up getting A's. And then after that, I never see him again. I just used him. And it was perfectly fine. It's good. <laughs> because I, can't, I don't have enough time to be best friends with everybody. I, how many, if I have to eat a whole bag of salt with every single person I meet, <laughs> I'll never make it. I'll never survive. <laughs> Aristotle will say, that probably in your life, you'll be able to count the number of friends you, true friends you've had on your hand. Not because of anything sad. It's actually good. Because true friends, deep friends, uh, the more you have, the more superficial they are. Because you just can't spend time with that many people. <laughs> just objectively. How, how, if I have to spend a little bit of time with you, a little bit of time with you, a little bit of, a little bit of time, everything is superficial. Everything is superficial as far as friend goes. Later on, we're going to speak about how I can have a profound love for everybody, but that's going to be what we call agape, which is this love of God. It's because I love God so much that I'm able to love you with all my heart. But in order to love you in philia, I have to work it. I have to be able to see who you really are. I have to be able to see who you really are and spend time with you. So this is not... Again, let's go back to that Eros thing. This is not Eros where it's this fire that burns within. If anything, if it is a fire, it would be a very calm fire that you're sitting next to in the house <laughs> while you're enjoying reading a book next to someone. <laughs> you know, the, it's this kind of love that uh, grows on you. That grows on you. And... Is it, good to have, is it good to have a friend that's different from you or the same as you? Which is better, complementarity or similarity? similarity? Yeah, Aristotle will say similarity. Complementarity is great for getting things done. For example, raising a child because we're doing a work together. If you're both the same, you'll make the same mistake. <laughs> You know? but, if you're, but if there's a complementarity to it, not opposition, you'll complement each other. So for getting a work done, complementarity is better. But for loving each other, same. Same is better. Because I can more quickly see what is lovable. It's harder for me to see the difference. What's lovable in someone that opposes me. It's harder for me to see what's lovable in someone that opposes me. It's easier for me to see what is lovable in someone that's similar. And so they both have their role. And you'll have some friends that are complementary and some friends that are, are um, similar. What about, what about social class? What about um, education? You have to be able to communicate with them. If one is extremely well-educated and the other is not educated at all, 
their conversations are not going to go very far. If you're both uneducated, at least you'll be admiring the same things and thinking about the same things, <laughs> you know? But if you're, one is uneducated and one is totally educated, it's going to be hard because your conversations will not go in the same directions. And so how will you share? And now, if you're uneducated, usually we mean by uneducated, incapacity to share. Because education is the process of learning how to speak, right? And learning how to communicate. That's a huge part of education. So if you're uneducated also, if you're both uneducated, you'll have, you won't be able to be as much of a friend. Well, you will, because you can be completely faithful to each other until death, even. You can be faithful all your life. So that much of a friend, yes, but it won't go as deep because I won't even know you as well, if that makes sense. So maybe the uneducated friends will be better off in some ways. <laughs> you know, Maybe they'll be better off in some ways because they'll be faithful to each other and having their barbecues next to each other in their similar houses for the rest of their life. Maybe in that sense, they're, they're better off, especially in a world that's so confusing. But if they're able to share books and talk about the books together or share um, discussions about things, there's something more to talk about besides the barbecue. And that's nicer. That is nicer, to be able to share their soul and not just their feeling. Um, and so the deepest friends are going to be friends, according to Aristotle, who are both philosophers. And what he means by philosopher, obviously, is not what we mean, like intellectual. It's not what we mean. Remember, he stayed, he stayed, he disagreed with Plato on many things. But he came to Plato's school, and he stayed at Plato's school, because he loved Plato as a friend, he stayed for 18 years studying with him. He left only because Plato died. And he was kicked out because of jealousy. Plato's son, we believe, was jealous of him. And so Aristotle was supposed to take over the school, and his son kicked him out and took over the school. And so he was kicked out because of that. But that's why Aristotle went on to his, back to his home and he ended up becoming the teacher of Alexander the Great. Uh, and so history seemed to work it all itself out. Um, now, Aristotle is going to speak about friendship being between two philosophers. He doesn't mean necessarily that they agree because he did, they didn't agree on all things, but they both were searching for the truth together. They're both exploring and wondering about creation and the world and who is, what is human together. Together they were searching. Um, and that's like two friends who are physicists searching together and sharing in the joy. Uh, sharing in the joy. There's something special in that. But he's going to go, he's going to say, okay, it's not, going back to those three, it's not a love of Pleasure, though, that's not the greatest form of love. It's not, a, it's not the love of usefulness. That's not the greatest form. It's going to be a love of benevolence. 
That's the greatest form. I can love wine with a love of pleasure. Um, and I should, actually. If you love it for other reasons, it gets weirder. Um, I can love wine for a love of usefulness because it's helping me to throw a party. Um, but I should never, it's really weird, if I love it for its own sake. I should never go up to the bottle and say, I love you for your own sake. And I will keep you and cherish you for the rest of eternity. No, I love you and I'll cherish you so I can drink you. Or I can make money off of you. One or the other. But I'm not going to love you for your own sake. Okay? I love you because you are beautiful. And what does that mean? I get pleasure from you. I mean, you can do like the aesthetic bottle. Like the bottle itself is beautiful. <laughs> so that, I can like have that artistic style. But it's still the love of pleasure. It's still the love of pleasure. So it's weird. Now, but versus when I'm dealing with a friend, a true friend, I actually wish the good for him. For his sake, not for mine. And that's what we call benevolencia, benevolence. Bene means good. Valencia, wish or will. I will the good for you. Benevolence, yes. I wish the good for you, for your sake and not for mine. And that's to be distinct from the other two, where I wish the good for you for my sake. Like I wish the good for the wine bottle so I can drink it. <laughs> you know? I'm, I wish the good for the other student. I wish that he might understand the subject so he might teach me. <laughs> okay? A, a love of utility. Here, I wish the good for your sake. Now, of those three, that last one is going to be the only one that we call true friendship. Notice, I'm starting to narrow down now a definition of friendship. Friendship, you have to have something, you have to be able to communicate. You know, if you can't communicate, be able to, then you can't really be friends. Like, for example, I cannot say I'm friends with a guy in China. And even if he came here, I still couldn't communicate with him unless he spoke English or I spoke Chinese. You know? Uh, so I'd still be stuck if he came here. Um, so there has to be something. We have to be able to communicate. We have to have a place where we're meeting, like, for example, at a table or at work or in the town. But if he's living on the opposite side of the town, I never see him. It doesn't count. We have to be, have a common life, we call that. We have to have a common life somehow. We have to also, in order to have a true friendship, Wish the good for the other. But not just that. It has to be mutual. Because if I wish the good for you, but you use me, it's still not a true friendship. So that aspect of mutual is yet another point. 
It's not a friendship unless it's mutual. And it's not mu- it's mutual benevolence. And so when we're dealing with what is friendship, it's reciprocal. It's a reciprocal love for each other. This love of benevolence is only possible for the virtuous man. Only a virtuous person can consistently have a friendship. If you're not virtuous, you don't have a true friendship because one of you is using the other for pleasure or for utility. And you may be doing that subconsciously, not purposefully. But you're doing it. (laughs) You're using the other person, whether or not you know it. That's what's proper to uh, a lack of virtue, is that you are not able to really love the other person for who they are. Think about two thieves or two drug addicts. Two thieves, they love each other because one opens up the door really well and the other one walks really quietly. (laughs) The, uh, The other one, two drug addicts love each other because they have pleasure shooting up with each other. And one gets the drugs and one steals or one... And then they also use each other. So love of pleasure and love of utility at the same time. A love of a child who hasn't yet learned virtue is similar to a child playing a violin. He's innocent often because he doesn't really realize what he's doing. But how many children really love for the other's sake? Or how much of it is just that they get so much from mom? How much of it is a love of pleasure in the child? And how much of it is a true spiritual love? I would say it grows. And as they get older, when they're six, seven years old, they start to have those first experiences of truly loving the other. Truly loving the other. But it depends on the child, right? Like St. Therese, I think, was already doing when she was three. <laughs> but I mean, this, that, that's a whole other case. But we speak about the age of reason. About the age of reason, about six, seven, is when you start to have uh, truly seeing the other. I remember that was the first time, I believe, I ever told my mom that I love her for her own sake. I said, I, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, I always love you, and you always love me. I started thinking about a love that... Uh, is unconditional. Um, and I may have lived of that all my life, but so do the animals live of that. They're, they can unconditionally, quote-unquote, love their uh, partners all their life. Not all animals, some do. Though. Some do all their life. So that doesn't make it true. <laughs> that doesn't make it truly selfless. Because they do that because they're programmed that way. And they do that, therefore, because they get pleasure. They, get, they feel good. They feel good about it. And that's why they do it. 
that baby feels good about it. That's why he loves his mom. And he learns to love his mom selflessly as he grows, hopefully, if they're, if they're educated well in what we call virtue. That's why the, baby is, the baby's love is like a violin played by a baby. It is beautiful to see them doing it. It is great to see them doing it. We all go, oh. Maybe not with the violin, maybe with the flute. <laughs> yeah, we go, oh, with the violin. But <laughs> we, we all go, oh, it's, it's really beautiful. Uh, and it is because it's the birth of love. But it's not the masterpiece of love. It's not. It's not enough. True love can only be had between two virtuous people. And it's interesting. Aristotle, so you want to talk feminism? Um, he doesn't come from a time that was very pro-women. Um, and, uh, but he's the first philosopher to say that there can actually be a friendship between a man and a woman. Plato said no, because we're too different. Yeah, the master cannot be friends with a slave, kind of thought. (laughs) Um, uh, And Aristotle will be the first to put forward uh, the fact that it is possible. And we think it's because he had a friendship with his wife, because of his own experience. When you see the wife of Plato, well, the wife of Socrates, really, coming in at the end of Socrates' life, it's more like uh, she's crying a lot because she doesn't understand, and she's like, she'll never be able to understand because she's too caught up in her emotions. (laughs) And it's just like, so there's no relationship, really. There's no real relationship. And so it's interesting. But this whole aspect about complementarity is partially behind that, too, uh, the complementarity of the sexes. Does that help or does that hurt in a friendship? And the complementarity will always be there between the sexes, but where the unity, the similarity has to be is, I would say, at the level of the soul. The similarity has to be at the level of the soul. I think of uh, a couple that I know who could not be more different could not be more different. The most extroverted man I've ever met and one of the most introverted women I've ever met. Um, and uh, yet in the soul, like their profound beliefs, they're very united. And even in their philosophy, they're very united. Very united. And so they can still be friends, even if it's hard for them to even talk. <laughs> they talk, but I mean, they have long conversations and you know <laughs> that kind of thing, have long conversations. Because the extroverted will tend to be thriving in the superficial conversation in the party, and the introverted will want to like take a book and read and then talk and <laughs> you know like like sit there and, and dwell on a subject and <laughs> so it's hard for them to talk, but yet the profound direction of their life will be united. So where are we united first and foremost? Level of the soul, and those kind of things do matter. Introverted, extroverted, that's more psychological and bodily. Those things do matter, though, but they're not, that, they're not the core of what needs to be similar for friends. 
what needs to be similar for friends is the direction and the fundamental philosophies of belief. Um, now, let's see. So, also, too, there's something I wanted to dwell, dwell into, delve into. Sorry. Um, make sure I didn't skip anything. Okay. This is going to be, for Aristotle, the foundation of politics. Love, a friendship, is not politics for Aristotle at all. But politics begins when there's three. Not when there's two. Two, it's friendship. Two is friendship. Three is politics. Where we have to, there's always going to be one that's different. We have to come up with deals and compromises and figure out how we're going to work this out. Uh, it's not going to work the way I want. Where um, in friendship, there could be a union of heart. Now, we can all three of us be friends, too. That's true. But already, uh, politics will be when there comes in three. Friendship, though, is going to be the foundation of politics. Even if they're different, it still is the foundation of it. Ultimately, too, he's going to say the foundation of politics is the family. So the first unit of politics will be the family. Because us two make one more, and that makes for three. And that's the beginning point of politics. And that's very interesting. Because if that's the beginning of politics, then you're going to find out... Well, in families, there's democracies, kingships, and aristocracies, like we were talking about the other night. You're going to see that the father could be the king, the mother could be the queen, and she just dictates everything, the matriarch of the house. Um, What is that famous quote from Big Fat Greek Wedding? Uh, It's, uh, the man is the head and the woman is the neck. She turns the head wherever she wants. (laughs) Um, the, <laughs> um, but the, uh, the matriarch, that is one. Or another one is the, the family is very rare because actually true democracies don't usually work. They're never a good form of government. Is where, as a family, we have to make all the decisions together. That's difficult. That's a very difficult form of government. And we see immediately how that doesn't work on level of family. It's much easier to see how it doesn't work on level of family than when you're talking about a a million people. It's harder to conceive a million people because you've never seen a million people unless unless you've gone to World Youth Day and saw them all on a beach or something. Um, Never seen a million people. So you start to see that there needs to not just be pure democracy, but there also needs to be some kind of kingship. Somebody needs to make a decision. (laughs) We're not going to sit here debating all day long. Um, but then maybe it should be the two most educated and the best at thinking about it. So say mom and dad, and then it becomes aristocracy. Yeah. And so you get the different forms of government. So pushing this a little bit further, I don't, he does, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and reread the Nicomedian. I don't think he talks about this last point. I think he does, Yeah. I don't remember. I'd have to go back and check. But, yeah, it might be him or St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, but all of Christian thought is going to take and ru- take this and run. 
when we speak about uh, benevolent love, loving the other for his own sake, you're going to start to speak about something that we call a detached love. And detached love just basically means I don't love you for my sake. (laughs) I love you for your sake. I want the good for you, not for my own interest. And so that means that I can let you go to school far, far away from me, and I will be happy because it's good for you, which means I'm detached. If I get get pleasure from the fact that you're going away from me to get educated, that means I'm virtuous. If I am sad and crying all day every day, for six months because my child left to go to school to get educated, it means I lack virtue because I'm not having joy in the good of my child. Does that make sense? And that's why we speak about it being detached because in order for me to have joy in your good, I have to not be holding on to my interest, my feeling. You get that? Detached love is very important. I have to love you for your own sake. Famous example in uh, scripture would be the Mary Magdalene one, where Mary Magdalene uh, is after the resurrection. She's so happy that Jesus is alive again, that she's holding on to him. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Detach from me. Which must have been hurtful for her. A detached love. If your love is not detached, then it's not a true love. It's not that you're detached in the sense like, I don't love you. No, I love you and want what's good for you. Therefore, I have to be detached. Not detached from loving the other. I love you with all my heart. Therefore, I want what's good for you. Is it what's good for you to go off to school over there? Or is it better for you, because you're a crazy child, uh, that you stay close to mom and dad? Therefore, I'm I'm not holding on to you. I just think it's honestly better for you. (laughs) You know? That's what's good for you. That's your good. You know? Um, Or uh, taking into consideration, like, for example, the husband and the wife who are encouraging each other in their jobs, holding each other up so that there could be some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, good in their job, (laughs) good in their job, and success in their job, some kind of success, where they're wishing the good for the other, but not to the extent where they're leaving the other, because they're both mutually loving each other, remember? They're both mutually giving, uh, wishing the good for the other. They don't abandon each other in that case. And so that's another whole concept to think of when we're thinking of philia. Um, Philia is always going to be a detached love if it's virtuous. It's never going to be self-interested. Hence, we're going to take these things and run uh, in Christianity, we're going to say that there's a lot of philia involved. 
Um, for example, are we supposed to be friends with Christ and, and with the Father? Yes. He says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Um, our, does that, that means that he lives within us in our day-to-day, and he is our salt. He is our salt. He is the thing that makes our day-to-day worth living. We share our secrets with him. We talk with him inside of our own hearts all day. For he is our friend. I'm not yet in the beatific vision, and even when I will be, I will gaze entirely upon God, and I will talk with the other saints. So I'll be entirely with him, and doing a work. Maybe not, maybe, I, maybe when everyone has gone to heaven, I won't be working on saving souls anymore, because everyone will already be in heaven. Everyone will be already be in heaven. But I'll still do a work, because I have to walk over and talk with you. <laughs> you know? So that's still a work. It's still a work where I don't have to walk over and talk with God. There will still be something that I will do. And so he'll still be the salt, the thing that gives an immense joy in everything I do and everything I see. It is definitely mutual. But the problem is with God is that he is infinitely higher than us. So how could there be a friendship before the incarnation, it's impossible. Aristotle says there, that when he's talking about it, that there can be no friendship between God and man. Because of that. Because it's just too far. How are you going to talk with them? What is the relationship? What is, how are we living together? You know? And you find that friendship really begins with Jesus. I no longer call you servants, and I now call you friends. Even in the Old Testament and New Testament. They are the children of God, but it's not the same as when Jesus comes. Jesus, that's the big thing, is that he reveals how God always wanted us to be his friends. And he was always working towards that. And now we have a common life with Christ and us. So philia is going to be a huge part of our formation in saying, what is our relationship with God? He is our friend. He has a detached love for us, meaning he always wants what's good for us. But if we don't do what he wants, he doesn't kill us. <laughs> Look at Satan. He doesn't destroy Satan. Just because Satan doesn't do what he wants, he stops some of the stuff, a lot of it. But he doesn't destroy him because he still loves him and always will love him, even if it's not mutual, so they're not friends. One <laughs> <laughs> probably isn't virtuous, but... Yeah, and one is probably... But would we even speak about virtue for an angel? That's a whole other concept. Oh, really? Yeah, angels don't have bodies, so they don't learn habits. Mm. Or they can, not the same kind of habits, though. Not prudence and temperance and... A lot like us, anyways. They have intellectual habits, maybe, you could talk about. But that's a whole other concept. But so that gets very interesting when you start to see how this affects our whole life. It also is going to be the core of the church. Our friendship with God is what makes the church 
the unity of all the saints is because we are all now friends with God. It's another way of seeing it, another way of seeing what is the church. I don't think that analogy is enough, but it is a good one. It is a good analogy. With God and our relationship with God, you have to come at it from many angles because he, he, God is immense. But, great. Anything you want me to go back on? It's always so much to think about, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What I, what I did, um, it's kind of with the general like, written about him, like being jealous of general like, why he kicked Aristotle. Well, so Aristotle was, well, for jealousy, I think, was the prime. These are all speculation, by yeah, the way. Uh, this is all like the um, teachers. No, not teachers, the intellectuals today, studying all the texts in the past without any video cameras and without any... So going from the texts that we have on why Aristotle left Athens and went back up to his, his home um, was because he was, we believe, kicked out. And some texts would speculate that it was... Old texts, I mean, would speculate that it was because of the jealousy of his son. And uh, also because... And of an obvious point, and it could be both reasons, is that Athen Athenians were racist very often, or let's call it racist because we're using a modern term. Um, they were anti uh, anyone that's outside of Athens, <laughs> thinking everyone else is inferior to them. And he came from like Hickland, <laughs> from the, out in the countryside. And, and from the uneducated world. And how could he take over one of the most important things going on in Athens? Mm -hmm. So there's also that whole mentality, too. To exaggerate it so that it brings home a point. There's that aspect also on how they came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. His son was also there. Yeah. And that was the birth of actual universities. Um, died out, but, and it wasn't the same kind of university. It, it'll come, universities as we know them came back in the end of the Middle Ages by Christianity. But uh, university, as far as school of thoughts, of higher uh, thought, it began with, uh, in Greece, at least in the Western world. <coughs> 